Welcome to episode eight of Draft Politics. I'm your host, Steve. As usual, I'm here with EJ. Hello, hello. Happy Monday, Steve. Indeed. Uh, we took uh, last week off due to uh, European travels. Jetting around the world as we do, I guess. Yes, yes. Well, as you do, I, I was here, but uh, it's all good. Uh, we're going to play a little catch up this week, and uh, we've got plenty to talk about, of course. Before we get started, I uh, want to just cover some show business, not show business, show business. Um, one question that was brought up by one of our listeners, Connie, uh, was whether we're going to be covering things that are outside of Chicago, more of like the suburbs of Chicago. Obviously, we talked a little bit about the state. And I uh, just want to say, you know, definitely something we're inclined to. Depends on like what we have time for, but um, it's something we're actively looking at, and we'll probably have more uh, coming about that in the coming weeks. But uh, just let you know it's on our radar. Yeah, and if there's a story that anybody out there wants us to cover, make us aware of, please let us know. We are really interested in those things. Uh, but I would say our contact network isn't as broad in the suburbs, so we don't pick up on some of the things that are coming out from yeah, there. Yeah, so if you can give us a hand there, that'd be awesome. Uh, also, if you, speaking of giving us a hand, if you could give us a review, uh, iTunes, Google Play, any of those sorts of places, that'd be awesome. Get a get a little more uh, notice for us outside of our normal network of friends. That'd yeah. be good. Yeah, I know we tried to bribe people with the Stitcher beer promise. Uh, so for episode eight, I'm going to I'm going to expand that. So leave us a review. If you leave us a review, I promise uh, to consider buying you a beer in a non-exchange way. But we'd love to see some reviews out there. We'd love other people to see that we're getting the, the listens that we know we are. So to start us off as usual, we're going to talk a little bit about Chicago and uh, the end of one era and the beginning of another. So uh, Rom's out and uh, Lori's in. Yeah, that's right. Really a historic day today. I was at the inauguration and got to see the gavel literally being passed. So Rom was there along with a cast of not only those being sworn in, all 50 aldermen, uh, the treasurer and the city clerk, but also sort of political notables, including our senators and our congressional re representatives for Illinois and the governor, Pritzker, made an appearance. But Rahm was there. He gaveled in the city council meeting because this is actually a city council meeting that the inauguration is part of. Um, didn't really say anything except do the, the work that he does sort of in control of opening the meeting. Uh, and then at the end of the inauguration, Lori gaveled it out. Uh, so it was a, a time of change. It was Really a great crowd. Everybody was very excited, as you might imagine, uh, for such a historic day and gave us a chance to uh, do a couple things. One was reflect on Rom's legacy. Yeah. And, you know, I've I have not been a fan of Rom's for a long time. Um, I I did vote for him the first time somewhat grudgingly. Uh, but then I've every election since and I've been trying to get rid of him. And uh you know, looking back over what he's done, um, one of my biggest problems with him was uh, the way that Laquan McDonald shooting was handled. Um, you know, and it goes to speak to some of the sort of ongoing problems we have in Chicago, and hopefully some of that will change uh, under Lightfoot's administration. But, um, you know, the, the cover-up there and just 
you know, this is, you know, the, the way that race is treated by the CPD has been a problem. And yeah. so I'm hoping that some changes will be happening. Well, and I think if you look across the spectrum and, you know, I'm sure there are lots of people who are covering this. But, you know, I look across and say the one thread is that where Rahm Emanuel can point to successes in things around, say, economics and even in schools to some extent. They're almost always offset by failures in other parts of the city or for other groups of people. You know, I think that Rom consciously or subconsciously furthered the tale of two cities in Chicago. Absolutely. And so yeah. and so I think, you know, you saw some positive changes, you know, if you're looking along downtown or near north side, but you know, a lot of the a lot of the city is left behind once again. And, you know, maybe that'll change uh, as things go forward here. Right. So you'd have maybe increased test scores, but then you'd close schools and neighborhoods Absolutely. that need them. Um, or you'd bring a lot of new businesses to downtown, but you'd be closing the manufacturing that was sort of the staple for some of the other neighborhoods, and those would be moving out. So, or the mental health clinics, which was a, a, a very big deal for people. And you've seen not only Lori commit to bringing those back, but individual communities saying, no, this has got to stop. So we had like Avondale, the Avondale area and Hermosa put something on the ballot to fund mental health clinics in their communities Yeah, because it had to be done. And it's, so. and it's hugely important. It's like, it's the sort of thing where, I mean, if you don't treat mental health properly, it ends up being a criminal justice problem, generally speaking. It also, you know, a little bit of mental health care can help people go from being, you know, homeless or some other sort of draw, drain on our society and being able to actually be productive, be, you know, actually contributing to things. And it doesn't necessarily take that much. But if we don't put any money into it at all, like we are right now, essentially, um, then, you know, that's what you end up with. So it's, a, it's the penny wise, pound foolish kind yeah. of attitude. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. But enough with that. Rom's gone. He's officially unemployed right now, I think. Planning on riding his bike around Lake Michigan, I think, is his plan. Yeah. Which would be <laughs> fun to watch. So so what do you think? Like, what's his next gig? I mean, you know, he's obviously he's got a little downtime, you know, going to, you know, lick his wounds a little bit. But, you know, what, yeah. do, what do you think he's going to do next? I mean, I've heard talks about him going on TV. Yeah, feeling pundit seems like his sweet spot, you know. Uh, yeah, a little, maybe a little abrasive, you know. A little abrasive. Have fun. Can he can he keep the swearing to a minimum? He he needs a podcast. I, he does. He does. And actually, Ram, if you're listening, happy to have you on anytime. Absolutely. Maybe he could be listening to our podcast on his bike, cycling around Lake Michigan. He just needs to get. You know what? Honestly, if he just wants to be on a podcast, he can just give us an iTunes review, and you know, maybe that's we'll true. Him that's on. true. He's going to be going by some great breweries. <laughs> we can give him some recommendation. As he goes around Dark Horse Brewery in Marshall, uh, he'll be coming up to Magic Hat. Not Magic Hat, rather, uh, but through Grand Rapids. It'll be great. I think that's really what he should be doing. But I think he's kind of biding his time to see what happens in 2020 and yeah. who's out there. And he's employable. Oh, I'm sure. He's employable. I know there was a lot of scuttlebutt about you know him potentially being caught up in some of the investigations that are going on. But... You know, as long as he stays clear of those, I think he's going to be able to write his own ticket, whatever he wants to do. For sure. 
So, but moving forward, in with the new. Indeed. In with the new. So I've got to say, uh, there were some really interesting things about the way that everything has happened over the last few days, the inauguration and whatnot, and everything surrounding it, and it's been great, uh, at least from my perspective. Uh, one thing that I think really sets some tone here is that at the inauguration party that was hosted by the campaign and Lori on Saturday, she got up in front of the 400 or 500 people there and sang Someone to Watch Over Me to her wife, Amy. And I was commenting with my wife today just how fantastic it has been to see them as a, the whole family as a unit, right? As representing not just you know, diversity, but also that the family is very important in her life and in her policies and how she's moving forward. So every time we've seen her, Lori, we've seen Amy and their daughter, Vivian. Yeah. And that's been fantastic. And Vivian's fully in for things and always there. And you'll see her with her uh, little cat ears on often, which is immensely cute. So that was great. That was really, really great. Uh, I, like I said, I was at the inauguration today. And in a real sign of change, I was closer to the stage than Joe Berrios was. So <laughs> former yeah. Cook County assessor sitting in general admission, as was I, for that matter. But further away, I kept looking over to see what things he was applauding during the inauguration speech. Yeah. Uh, not a whole lot, I've got to be honest. Not a whole lot. So I think we should talk about that speech because it goes to her outline for where her priorities are. Yeah, and I didn't get a lot of details on this i know that there was something about like taking the chicago flag as a metaphor for this so if you could go into that yeah i i really liked this as well so she had said you know we have the four stars on the flag they represent important points in chicago's history the founding of fort dearborn the two big expositions and the rebuilding after the fire she said let's reimagine those for a moment as our guiding stars so what are the things that we are going to make sure are better? How do we focus ourselves? And so the first was safety, was public safety. And so that's going to include all of the things that she talks about in terms of police reform, treating violence as a really a health issue. So when she was talking about safety, she was talking about supporting the community with mental health resources, opening the clinics back up, supporting the police with better training and mental health health facilities for them, and speaking of the trauma yeah. that people go through. And that's, that's a huge thing that doesn't get talked about much, um, is that one of the leading causes of, you know, excessive violence by the police is the trauma that they suffer and are not getting proper treatment for. So they get, you know, PTSD, et cetera, and then they're lashing out at the people around them. And so uh, being able to address that is, I think, a critical part of the overall hope of trying to make, you know, the way we do law enforcement and criminal justice in the city much better. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, 
we think back to last week when she announced who her committee chairs were going to be. And I think Alderman um, Talia Farrow is going to be on the hot seat, right? He'll know that as chairman of the Public Safety Committee, he's going to be expected to do things very quickly. Uh, and I know that they're, they're moving already on writing ordinances and things in the background. So safety was guiding star number one. Uh, education was guiding star number two. Uh, you know, again, essentially, we need to make education equal across the city. We need to rethink that the way they fund schools. So right now, CPS is funded through a formula. Each school is funded through a formula based on how many students they have enrolled and some attributes of those students. And so there's a base number for each student. And then on top of that, there are modifiers for things like uh, socioeconomic status and socioeconomic status of the school overall. Uh, gifted schools get a little extra. You know, there are things like that that kind of add up. And she has proposed getting rid of all of that and funding them in a different way, which makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Because right now, you know, as... Neighborhood schools lose enrollment as gentrification comes in and the number of units and especially family units goes down. The funding for a school gets impacted and the performance almost invariably goes down and it's kind of a vicious cycle in that way. So education was that second thing and she was very passionate about that. Yeah, and I think another thing that, you know, it sounds good, and I think stability was another one of them. Um, yes. You know, the reality of it is, and I, you know, I will give Rom a little bit of a a pass on some of what we had to deal with in Chicago because our finances have been so screwed up, and that yes. that trickles down from the state level. Um, but you know, obviously, focusing on that and trying to get our our financial house in order uh, is a big thing. Um, and then also, housing was a part of this, right? So she addressed stability in two ways. One was fiscal stability and the other one was stability of the people in the city so how do we address the housing needs in the city how do we make sure that families can stay that the elderly can stay people without any other support network are able to remain in their homes yeah. or remain in the city and she talked a lot about looking at the exodus of people from the city as one of our bigger challenges. And I know that that housing area is going to be you know, something that's addressed with things like changing zoning laws. So you can do you know, what they call ADUs, so sort of accessible dwelling units, so like granny flats and coach houses, which were legal for a while and then illegal, and so I think they're trying to get those again. And yeah. I know, again, things are in the works around that. Yeah, and I know one of the bigger problems has been that, you know, it's easy to take a two-flat and turn into a single-family home, but it's very hard to go the other way around. And so right. that's, you know, and, and two-flats and three-flats have been a very good source of both a way for there to be affordable housing, but also a way for people to build wealth. You know, it's like somebody goes in, they buy a building, um, they, they, they rent that out, and that becomes an investment that they, you know, take out over their entire lives. Right. And those have been slowly going away, especially in the places that have been hotter for gentrification. Yeah, for sure. And some of that came out of some laws that were passed or ordinances that were passed, sort of downzoning things. 
but leaving two flats in is grandfathered. So if you did a certain amount of work, you couldn't leave it as a two flat. And now I think there are lots of Alderman and Lori who were interested in trying to reverse some of those trends and yeah. using the land trust, the Chicago land trust again as part of that. So the fourth one was really interesting. And so up to this point, you know, as she's going through these policy items and the vision, there's universal applause and enthusiasm for it. Alderman, the crowd, they're standing up, they're cheering, everybody's great. And then she starts talking about integrity and pointing to this and saying, if you can't trust government, who can you trust, essentially? And well. was <laughs> very, very aggressive on what she said here in terms of things like, you should not be allowed, it should be illegal to profit from your position. Now, she did not turn around and look at Ed Burke for an uncomfortable <laughs> 15 seconds. But that would have been awesome. But everybody else <laughs> was looking at Ed Burke during this. And she was very explicit about taking away the ways in which elected officials in Chicago have enriched themselves at the expense of either the individual citizens or just the running of good government and how that hurts us. And so at this point, you start, started to see a lot of maybe cheering from the audience, not as much cheering from the aldermen sitting behind her, which I found not terribly surprising, but a little interesting. Yeah. Um, the other thing that she talked about with that was around aldermanic prerogative. So she essentially said, we're going to get rid of it the way it is now. She said, "That's you know, we're certainly going to leave aldermen with the power to make sure the streetlights are on and those kinds of things. Menu money, the money that aldermen get sort of to spend at their discretion is not going away. But she essentially said they're not going to be able to veto projects or pass projects just because they like them or dislike them. They'll have a voice but not a veto. Yeah, and that's it should be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, I can see it as a bit of a double-edged sword. That's obviously been a big source of corruption that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, one of the big ways that aldermen are able to sort of build up their machine is that they can use their power as, as leverage against local businesses or whatever, like, oh, you're not going to get that license if, you don't, you know, if you're not on my right. side, et cetera. But at the same time, that's obviously a shift in power towards the mayor, which is, you know, historically a bit of an issue in Chicago. So <laughs> yeah. it'll be interesting to see kind of like how that plays out yeah. and what that what that voice actually means. And that said, you know, also I think that we see a more fragmented um, city council or at least a broader representation of different people in the city council. So it'll be interesting to see if that also shifts as we start to do that too. It's like, right. okay, they're going to be less than many mayors than they've been and much more the like, engaged city council people that we would expect. Right, and I, I hope that what it means isn't that the mayor's office can look at some of these programs that would have traditionally been sort of at the discretion of the aldermen and make the decision. I would hope that it means that those decisions are made in a more pragmatic and thoughtful way. So if aldermen have to go and essentially whip votes and talk to the other aldermen around them to get something passed, I think that'll be a good thing. Yeah. Um, well, it seems like it, or, it sort of lends itself to more of a 
say, it, it leans you towards saying yes rather than no to whatever's going on. And so, you know, so we'll see. Like, that can be definitely good. You know, we'll, we'll have to, you know, kind of see how it plays out in the long run. But, yeah. Yep. So one interesting thing that she didn't really talk about today was the Office of the Environment. So that was something that was closed by Rahm Emanuel. She said she's going to reopen it. Um, again, we know that there is going to be a mayor's committee on it, a very small team, and they're going to reopen it, you know, again, hopefully in the first 100 days, but it wasn't one of that four things, one of the four things that got kind of wrapped in to the speech today. But all in all, it was... A, a very bold speech. She was not afraid to, you know, essentially piss people off with some of the things that she said. And it was about people doing things together. Yeah. The entire city working together to get things done. And, you know, she was honest about the tough decisions that are coming down the pike. We all know fiscally there are issues that have to be addressed and those aren't going to be addressed through easy solutions. Uh, but she was open about that. She talked about the city, again, as one moving forward. So it was a great speech and well-received by the folks there. Yeah, and I have to say one of the things that really made me optimistic about the direction she's heading was um, what I heard about the appointments for the aldermen. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, like, for example, the, the one that stuck out at me was Wogsbach for the finance committee. Um, this was, this is Ed Burke's baby up until now so that's a huge change of direction it's a big hat to fill <laughs> yes yes it is um he can borrow Lori's hat you know? right <laughs> well and he said scott Wagesback, who is uh, the alderman of the second ward he says not being 100 percent sure um has said he is going to clean house that he is going to go in he's going to figure out what's working what's not working and he is going to clean house in that committee. Yeah. And I think it's good to, like, get somebody in there who's been critical to say, okay, it, it's both getting their eye on it, but also getting their buy-in into whatever's coming out of yeah. it. Yeah. 30-second ward. 30-second ward. You had the two right. That. Yeah. Had the two right. Um, but wasn't too right. So so that's, that's the good stuff, right? This is all the change. But just as a reminder that we're here in Chicago. Uh, Melissa Conyers Irving was a state representative before being elected city treasurer. And her seat was given to, drum roll please, the stepson of Walter Burnett, 27th Ward Alderman. So just to, you know, ground us, yes. remind us where we are. Uh, we still got that still goodness. patronage and all that good stuff. Yep. So, and yeah. he said, well, why shouldn't he? It's his turn. So it was a... Again, a good reminder that there's work to be done. Yes. Uh, and I think everybody's excited to get to work. Yeah, that. and I think it's like this is one of those moments of there's a lot of room for optimism. Obviously, it's going to run headlong into the, the issues that we do have, and we'll, we'll kind of see what comes out of it. You know, and uh, Lightfoot gets four years to, you know, give us a sense of what she's going to do and hopefully show some direction. And I think it would be hard to do worse than Rom. <laughs> But, um, you know, and I, I, and I feel like I feel really optimistic both about her position in it and also what we've changed in the city council and some of the people there. I think that there's a lot of people with some good ideas and some good ways about thinking about Chicago as a whole that I think cautiously optimistic. We'll see what happens. 
Yeah, I'll be interested to see how the sort of affiliations shake out with For the sure. new aldermen. So we've lost some people who were big personalities in the in the city council, and now we've got to figure out how the Maria Haddens and Andre Vasquez's of the world, where do they start putting their allegiance? Who are they working with? Because those those factions will exist. It's the nature of things. Absolutely. So that'll set the tone. All right. Moving on. Actually, I want to just say one thing about the state. Uh, there are currently some laws that they are looking at or have been proposed about uh, heavily taxing electric vehicles as a way to raise. Oh, revenue. yeah, I did see something about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you have to maintain the roads and those cars do go on the roads. So there's a logic to it, but um, it sounded like a fairly heavy tax. Oh, yeah, like a thousand dollars. Yeah of registration as opposed to whatever it's $150 now. Yeah. I own an electric car, so I'm going to say that's a bad idea. <laughs> well, and I think it's like we need to, I mean, you're going to have to shift to that at some point. You know, if all goes well in the future and we're all, you know, running on solar power and wind power and it's all just, you know, works great, you still got to maintain the roads. You do. Um, you know, and I, I've, I've long thought, you know, ideally, you know, it's all the federal level. Everything rolls down. There's lots of, you know, progressive taxation in there. But at the end of the day, the people who are using the roads are going to have to pay for it. So it's true. I'm all I'm all for something. Uh, but th a couple of the, the proposals have felt pretty regressive and I feel personally attacked. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's not it wouldn't raise that much money anyway. There aren't enough electric vehicles for that to make a huge impact. Well, yeah. And over time, it will become a regressive tax if more cars are electric. Right. So, you know, we got to be mindful of that. So beer. I like beer. Beer. Yes. It's uh, a good thing I do like beer. Yes. Because that's what we talk about uh, and drink. So we're here at Alarmist this week. Alarmist Brewing and Tap Room at uh, 4055 West Peterson. Yes. Uh, I've never been here. I guess you've been here before. No, I've driven oh, by okay. a number of times. Okay. Uh, my daughter's orthodontist is across the street, which really tells you a lot. Uh, it's you drop her off at the orthodontist, grab a pint, no problem. Absolutely. And it's so it's just west of Pulaski on Peterson Road, so pretty far northwest side here. Really, really good. I'm having a double dry hopped cask IPA, East Coast style, so it's hazy. All citra hops, as the bartender described it to me, he said, well, it's citra hops, then dry hopped with citra hops, and then some more citra hops. Uh, and it certainly shows. All the hops. It is It is delightful. They have happy hour today. Yes, so we're going to get a little discount on our beers, so that's good. $2 off, pint or larger. Um, yeah, I'm having the Pantsless, which is an American pale ale. Um, their beers uh, on the list right now are dr drifting pretty heavily to the IPA side of things. So yeah. uh, I found something that's not quite there, uh, and it's uh, pretty good. So, yeah. yeah. But they've got two things on cask most of the time. Looks like a pretty heavily rotating menu. Um, the location is cool. I have seen in the past uh, food trucks out here. So taco trucks. I don't think they have any food for sale here other than they got bags chips of chips and, yeah, and, about and whatnot. So our normal hot pretzel could not be had here. And I couldn't feel good about buying the pretzel thins from behind the bar. Yeah. But the beer is good. I mean, I really, really like this East Coast IPA. 
uh, if you're up in this part of the neighborhood, I highly recommend stopping by Alarmist here at 4055 West Peterson. Yeah, and one other thing on the subject of beer, um, I had a chance to go to, it was a homebrew Thunderdome over at Empirical Brewing. Um, I had never gone to a, a beer festival that was like, you know, tasting uh, homebrewed beers, and it was a really interesting experience. Um, because I've done home brewing and I've always wondered, you know, I've never really thought my beer was all that good. And then I had some of the beers there. I'm like, my beer's actually not bad. <laughs> um, wow. There were actually some very good beers there, um, but there were also some very not good beers there. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's kind of the nature of home brew. And so it's a good experiment. Um, but uh, highly recommend it if you get the chance just to kind of see the variety. And, you know, it's, you know, a pretty cheap way to to have a, a good day of uh, drinking with your friends i that does sound fun yeah I, that does sound fun and you know pretty soon here on june 1st we'll have the chicago ale fest in grant park oh yeah butler field so yeah i always used to go to the uh chicago beer classic which they do at soldier field which you know 90 percent of the awesomeness of that is you're on soldier field so you know the, the only downside was it would tend to be the first week of May usually, so the weather was a little hit or miss. Sometimes it was great, and sometimes it was a rainy mess, and you right. never knew. But So going from beer <laughs> on to national politics and our usual Circus 2020. Election Circus 2020! My word. So what do you want to start with? Do you want to start with yet another person running? Well, let's, yeah, let's just get that out of the way. Uh, Steve Bullock, governor of Montana. Uh, I don't know. When Brian Schweitzer was talking about running for president, I thought that was cool. But that's, you know, another governor ago. And uh, I don't really know where Steve Bullock fits in this race. But I feel like there's, there's a lot of people who are like, well, I'll hang out for a bit and see if, you know, something yeah. happens and I get lucky. But... I, I really don't understand the, the strategy. I don't. And just because there are so many people running and every every day there's more messaging, people are getting earned media. And for these folks, you know, like Steve Bullock, how is he going to not just prove himself to the voters, but just get the name recognition that he'd need to get the donors that he need to get on a stage to be treated seriously. Absolutely. Um, you know, and it will get more interesting if if Biden stumbles. You know, I mean, like right now he's he's got a pretty strong uh, amount of support. If that falls off a little bit, you know, he's still kind of in the same position. If it falls off substantially, then it's like a free-for-all over kind of who's taking that space. Yeah. Um, you know, right now you've got the sort of the people following him are um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and both of them are kind of in the same prog strong progressive space. Yep. Um, so we'll see what happens if Biden falls off, you know, and maybe then finally Seth Moulton will see his day. Come on, Seth. Come on, Seth. Uh, Did you Seth, get the if you're yet? listening, your shipping department is terrible. <laughs> Still waiting for my Seth Moulton T-shirt. The the thing about Warren, though, over the last couple of weeks is that she, I think, has really picked up some steam. Yeah. I think her I've got a plan for that is resonating with people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's it's 
I think there was a sense early on that Warren and Sanders were both very similar in terms of like their, you know, their policy positions or whatever. Sanders has had a certain amount of advantage because he'd run in 2016 and he'd already sort of built up that base. And I think that Warren, by having so many strong policy positions coming out so regularly, it's really sort of allowed her to separate herself a little bit from, from Sanders. And Sanders has lost a little bit of support if you look in the polls, and it's, it seems to be going towards Warren. So it'll be interesting how that plays out if they're able to draw from other, you know, if they're able to draw from Biden, for example, um, or if they end up sort of just taking from each other. Yeah, and I guess my feeling is that the more of this sort of knowledge base that she gets out to people, the more you know, she is educating people, even if they don't necessarily like her at the beginning, she is educating people in a way that none of the other candidates are. Yeah. And while she's not matching sort of the enthusiasm for a candidate like the people around Pete Buttigieg, she is elevating the discussion. And it seems like the more she talks to people one-on-one, -on -one, the better she does. Well, and I recall, didn't, I think in the last week, uh, Buttigieg had, like, he finally came out with some policy positions, and it was like, it felt like it was a response to Warren. I mean, obviously he had to come up with them at yep. some point, but he seemed to start off very explicitly avoiding that, thinking he could define that later, and I think that her moves have made him sort of rethink that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's been this kind of discussion I've heard from other people saying, well, okay, so if somebody is pushing this aspect of the campaign, so you have to have policy out there, you have to be able to talk about it in detail, you have to be able to show how you're going to help working people across the country and you know, solve some of our problems around economic inequality, that will drive some of these folks out of the race. Because they won't have that. They won't have the fundraising. And if that drives them out of the race, does that mean we're really narrowing it down? Does it mean we open up some airspace for somebody like Stacey Abrams to run? You know, and that's, that's part of the thinking that I've heard from some other folks. I'm not sure, but yeah. you know, them saying Stacey Abrams is going to run as soon as the field is down to a paltry 15 candidates. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like as we get into the debates, I mean, first of all, we're going to lose a few people because they're just not going to qualify for the debates because yeah. we get enough donors. Um, the donor threshold is not that high, especially with a lot of people thinking, well, I'll just send a dollar to that person to get them over the over the hump. I mean, um, I, I sent a five bucks to Jay Inslee because I wanted to see him talk about climate change on the stage. You know, so there's some of that going on. But then once it becomes clear of who's got a pretty solid position, who's going to fade, yeah. you're going to see a lot of people just drop out. I suspect people like Hickenlooper are probably going to go, cool, this is fun. I'm going to go run for Senate instead. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's great. I mean, assuming that, you know, he's able to be in a good position against, you know, Cory Gardner and all that. But um, it's a very crowded field. Right now uh, it's two debate nights with, you know, 20, what, 25, 26 candidates currently throwing their hat in, uh, so. 30, 35. I mean, I figure we're going to have 10 people on each stage, and it's going to be a little ridiculous. And my concern is you're going to see, you know, one stage where it's Biden and, you know, 
Seth Moulton and, you know, and then another stage will be Warren Sanders and Kamala Harris. And it'll be like this uh, weird mismatch setup, right? of like, you know, different sort of levels of yeah. how close are they to actually running. Sure. It'll be, yeah, Joe Biden. I don't know how it happened, but Uncle Joe's got the, the milk yeah. run on the Yeah, so that'll the be the next, next set of Russian emails to come out. <laughs> You know, the God. thing of it is, though, even then, like, it would be, I wouldn't even see that as a, an advantage to him because then it just looks like he's just, you know, dealing with a bunch of people who shouldn't even be there. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's really where I think this is going to get interesting is when you see Warren and Sanders and Biden all debating each other because that's where you're going to see what is different about Warren versus Sanders, what both of them are different versus Biden and policy positions and all that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, I think, Mayor Pete's going to be in that mix, too. He's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. And well, that's the thing is I think, it, like, he's clearly a smart guy. He's, you know, he started coming up with his policy positions. I want to see him on that stage, you know, defending them. I think my biggest, my biggest reservation with him has been that he's, you know, been a mayor of a small town, and that's yeah. it. And so how does he translate that to a national stage? And I think... Part of the reason de Blasio got in is he's like, well, that guy's running from South Bend. I ran right. New York City. <laughs> so I, I feel like I've got at pork. least some credibility relative to that yeah. guy. Mayor Pete has this kind of enthusiastic following, though, at least here. And I wonder how much of it is kind of skewed from being here in Chicago. And obviously South Bend is just down the road. And lots of people in that campaign are from Chicago for a couple of reasons. One, geography. Uh, two, you know, Chicago is home to a lot of people with political experience on national campaigns from both Obama and Clinton's campaigns. And Mayor Pete is building his organization out, trying to formalize it a lot more now. It's not just sort of that core group. They're building regional, uh, regional organizations to do organizing and whatnot uh, and they're competing for those experienced campaign staffers with with beto o'rourke who's also doing recruitment up in yeah. chicago and, and i and, I think and this is ever and this is competing over the people who are still left because there's plenty of people who already worked on, oh, on sure. all those other campaigns yeah yeah and that just tells you i think for me the space that pete is playing in and why beto o'rourke is kind of nowhere to be found right now because he doesn't have a lane suddenly anymore. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think he, I think Beto got a little bit blindsided by, you know, how everything played out once he jumped in. He had this sort of reputation from having run against Ted Cruz, and when you're comparing yourself against Ted Cruz, everybody looks progressive. When you're comparing right. yourself against Bernie Sanders, yeah. yeah, and then it kind of, you know, went in the skids. But, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, he's obviously... It's so funny is like I feel like in 2016, like I feel like even in 2008, like I don't feel like we were talking very actively about the election this far in advance. Oh, no, no. way. And now it's like we got to get we want to we're so desperate to get Trump out of office. We're like, we got to talk about this shit now because, you know, we want this all to be done. Right. And it's it's almost masochistic in a way, because we all, regardless of the outcome in 2016 we were ready for that to be over yeah that campaign was just brutal 
the whole way through just this full yeah. on. And it's still assault. we're still talking about it even today. Yes. It's just it's <laughs> And now we're like, well, I can't wait to get into this twenty twenty campaign. We gotta get this right. Yeah. So we're we're diving headlong into what is promising to be just as bad, if not worse, than Well, you know, I think it's gonna be I think a lot of it comes down to how does sort of the finishing round of the primary play out. Is it yeah. is it Biden versus Sanders? I can see that being almost as ugly as 2016. If it's Biden and Sanders and Harris has got a bit and Warren's got a bit and it's yeah. like there's like a little bit more nuance there. I can also see a scenario where, you know, we've got we've written down to the uh, down to the convention and you've got enough people who have enough votes that it ends up being not necessarily a broker convention, but Warren saying all of my people go vote for Biden. You know, just as for a completely unlikely example. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that I, that would just freak me out. I yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't like that. Maybe they all go to Seth Moulton. They all go to Seth Moulton. <laughs> He's the compromise candidate. He is the compromise candidate. The broker convention picks Seth, Seth Moulton. Hey, heard it here first, I guess. I feel like we should have a running segment, though, where we predict the number of Democratic candidates for the next week. Right. Just if it's so once go they start falling out or you, so you like you're saying like, OK, well, like there'll be 27 next week or whatever. Right. Is it going to be up? Is it going to be down? Is it going to be even? It's kind of like one of the Price is Right games you know, where they put up a number and it's like it's higher. It's lower. Yes. You know, or we asked 100 Democratic politicians, 27 of top, them said top, top 100 Democratic politicians surveyed. I mean, I think we're going to have one more by next week. That's my my feeling. I think we're going to stay steady. I, I feel like there's nobody else who could really get in at this point who, I mean, I know. I mean, I thought that last week and then Steve Bullock hops in. Sure, but yeah. I feel like we've run, we've run the course of that. And it's going to be, the debates are going to be at the end of June. At this point, if you're hopping in, you're going to have a hell of a time getting the donations necessary to get in on that debate. So at this point, it's going to be wait to see how the debate plays out and see what's, what lanes sure. open. Yeah. But I could totally see, I could see candidates waiting till the first debates are done. Like there oh may yeah. be a whole nother like raft <laughs> of candidates that come out. That's after when the Rom's first getting in. Yeah, that's when Rom's getting in. Perfect. It's just <laughs> lining himself please, up. Please shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our next episode from in Lake Michigan. Yes. Like slowly sinking down, saluting. It's been a pleasure. I won't be able to deal with that. No. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the nation. And just so you know, if you're familiar with our podcast, we often take a little break in the middle to go get another beer because this is really about beer and politics, although I know it seems heavily skewed in the political vein. Uh, I have got this Simcoe Days. It's another hazy IPA because kind of one trick pony on these. It is also fantastic, out of the tap, beautiful color, beautiful aroma. I mean, the Simcoe hops are, are fantastic. I, I could drink this, but shouldn't, all day. could yes. drink this and all I day. And I went with the Alarmist Mild Sauce, uh, which is their English mild bitter. Uh, and it's good. It's good. It's uh, a little bit, I mean, it's obviously much darker. Good, uh, good like, kind of smoky quality to it. Yep. So, Salty. Yep, yep. Yeah, I looked at... They had that beer, the super mild sauce that was on cask, but they had just run out. 
Otherwise, I would have definitely gone yeah, that that's route. Yeah, that's what this would have been if it had not run out. So. Yeah. Oh, well. All right, so national news. So there's been a lot that's happened in the last couple of weeks, and I think everybody who has been paying attention, even mildly, has read about all of the laws that are being passed in state legislatures that are essentially, you know, the practical impact is banning abortion uh, for almost any reason in those states. Really what they're trying to do is set up legal challenges to Roe versus Wade. Yeah, and it's interesting, like, the timing of all this, how they're all coming out with them at the exact same time. So there's clearly been some strategy about how they're tying this, and I don't know if that has to do with how long it'll get through the courts to when the elections happen, but, you know, there's clearly a pattern here. Yeah, and look, I don't want to ever pretend that terrible laws passed by old white guys need to be commentated on by other white guys. So yes. we, we don't need to rage about that now. There's been enough rage. I think people breaking down what the law is. But I think for me, and I talk a lot about how we use language in political discourse and how people throw things around carelessly. The idea that a person is could be redefined as uh, a zygote, right? So a zygote could have full personal rights and something that was really a very radical idea five years ago. The people pushing this were kind of shunned even by conservatives, and now they're being embraced. Yeah. I mean, these are people, there's one woman who I don't even want to give name service to, but you know, her thing prior to this was gay conversion therapy. Surprise. Surprise. <laughs> and now she is this poster child for you know, personhood being defined very early. And they toss this around as if it doesn't have very profound implications outside of outside of this one issue that they're concerned about. Right. I mean, if you define, okay, so if you're going to take that to its logical extreme and say, all right, as soon as conception happens, that's a person. Okay. Well, if you're going to say that, then fertility clinics need to be shut down for mass murder because that's what they do is you have fertilized eggs, which would all be zygotes, and they're m- the vast majority of what they have ends up getting disposed of because they just aren't used and all that. And so, you know. Right. And uh, my wife said something and uh, really, really poignant. If the same laws apply to that person, then does that mean that person needs to ride in the back seat of a car? Right. So women can no longer drive. Well, and better yet, um, you don't know when you're pregnant until, you know, this, I mean, one of the big things that's come up about this is, you know, the law was set at six weeks in Georgia, where it's saying, okay, if you, you know, you only have until six weeks. Well, most women are not going to know. I mean, maybe they'll know by six weeks, but it's awfully close. And so if you don't know you're pregnant, well, maybe you should just never drive because you might be pregnant at any moment. So it's, uh, it's it's terrifying and horrible. Um, again, two white guys don't need to comment on it. 
trying to be allies here, and I think we all just need to to keep raging and keep remembering that this is why the Senate is important. Well, is yeah, it's why the Senate's important and also why I think that this was lo people lost sight of this in 2016 was how much influence one president can have. You know, think about where we would be right now with the way the Supreme Court has played out if we had had President Clinton instead of President Trump. Now, granted, the, you know, the Senate, what we probably would have is the Senate would have just kept it as, at a stalemate like it was and, you know, nothing changes. But instead, what's happened is Trump's already gotten two picks. He could conceivably get another couple picks before he's gone. There's talk of Clarence Thomas stepping down after this term, and that will not not the presidential term, he, this term of the Supreme Court. Right. Um, and so he could appoint another person, which will bring down the sort of average age of the conservative judges so that we're looking at, you know, 20, 30 years before we have a chance to swing it back. Yeah, generational. Yeah. Really. And you've got Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who's 86 and has survived cancer a lot. <laughs> um, you've got uh stevens who's been there forever and is yeah. older than her i think is he older than her is he i think he's younger than her i but, think he's just younger but yeah. he's he's still old he's still in that you know that gap of you know this is when people start to die just from being old yeah. and um so there's a very real risk that by the time trump's out of office there are two more conservative judges on the on the court and there's nothing we can do about that and so as we look into 2020 i feel like we need to think longer term like i think that's one of the problems that we have is we go every four years every two years and we're always like heads down on that we talk about beating trump and we got to beat trump okay cool beat trump that's good but then what comes four years later eight years later mm -hmm. etc biden is the current leader in the presidential race and he said that he's going to, correct me if I'm wrong, he said he's going to step down after four years, right? Yeah. So, okay, cool. So we're going into another four years. We're going to have a brand new election with brand new Democrats and brand new Republicans running against each other. Do we end up with another potential fascist putting Supreme Court nominees in on there? If Biden wins and we don't win the Senate, and I think that's the thing we've got to think about in the short term, if we don't win the Senate, a President Biden, President Harris, isn't going to be able to do anything. They're not going to be able to put any Supreme Court justices on there. And sure. you can't even just find younger replacements for good, strong justices that yeah. we have now. And it's not just at the Supreme Court level. It's at every oh, level. yeah. And that's one thing that's definitely been underplayed is how much Trump has managed to affect judges up and down the, up, up and down the circuits. And yes. one of the things I've really hated about Chuck Schumer's reign is that he has been signing off on a lot of those judges just to try to expedite getting people home to so they can campaign and things like that. And he's not really fighting, not really being part of the resistance. Let's put it yeah. that way. And, you know, we talk a lot about or we've talked a lot about McGahn, you know, who was White House counsel when we think about the Mueller report and all of that. But honestly, like his legacy is pushing those justices through. Mm -hmm. He did, you know, if you step back and say, 
I don't really like who he pushed through, but he did an amazing job queuing them up, vetting them, and maybe getting them from their list of approved justices or judges from the Federalist Society. Thank you. The Federalist Society just <laughs> staring, <laughs> staring blankly. Couldn't remember it, but he pushed them all through. I think that is that is yeah. his legacy. Yeah, they do get an advantage in that they're a much more consolidated voting block than Democrats tend to be. But but yeah, so it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Obviously, the the laws are getting passed now. Uh, I will just point out again, talking about what's an important thing in an election, Stacey Abrams would not be signing on to that Georgia abortion bill if she had a chance, but yet she is not governor. Um, so, you know, I think we just got to see how that plays out. Hopefully, as it goes through the courts, it'll get stopped. It'll get slowed down. But, you know, we're going to look at a very real future where we've got um, some states where effectively abortion is illegal. I mean, and yeah. in truth, some states are already pretty close to that now, where it's like there is an abortion clinic and there are so many restrictions that it's 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 possible if you're a person of means. But if you're not a person of means, it's awfully damn hard. Right. And even for our folks who aren't looking for abortion services, the effect has been women without means have much less access to health care. Yeah. That's and, and, you know, this, I think, we is something that we need to think about as we talk about w- one of the things that will come up very often in the presidential debates is economic equality. Well, this is a factor of economic equality for women. If Absolutely. you cannot control your, you know, your pregnancies, that is an, an impact on your ability to earn a living, and it makes you more likely to be having to be dependent on somebody. And so we have to think about all of that as we look at this. Right. More cheery things. <laughs> Relatively speaking. You know. Let, less handmaid's, handmaid's tale Yes, exactly. I, it was one of my favorite tweets from the last couple of weeks. Somebody saying, Hulu is amazing. I can look out my window and see Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> uh, funny, not funny, right? Anywho. Clearly, there are still some investigations going on in the House around the things that have come out in the Mueller report. I, you know, I don't know, you know, new, not new. I mean, the new stuff, I guess, in my mind is, one, the White House is like, La, 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 sticking their hands in their ears. We don't hear any of those subpoenas. We're going to fight everything. We don't think that there should be any oversight being done by the legislature. Uh, We know today a federal judge ruled against uh, the Trump organization uh, in terms of their fighting a subpoena from the finance committee to get records from one of the companies that the Trump organization works with, so trying to get tax records and right. whatnot. So there's been a setback for them there or a set forward for us? I, yes. It's the opposite yes. of set, setback. So sure. that's good, but I think you know, interviewing people like McGahn and Mueller, there's still lots of pushback there. Um, this is definitely going to the courts. I, and it really is sort of astounding to me that we're at a point where the Justice Department is just saying, what do you want us to say? Okay, uh, you don't want to send them? Okay, we'll write 
will write a memo that said, look, they're just going to lie or pretend they don't know or claim privilege. So what? there's Why no reason to send it. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's what the opinion said. It well. would be a waste of time and not good faith governing to send them <laughs> to make them available because they're just going to say they can't talk about it. <sighs> yeah, you know, and it's like I was um, I was most struck this week by um, Justin Amash coming out yeah. and uh, his opinion on Mueller. So Justin Amash, a Michigan uh, congressman, and he's a Tea Party guy. So this is not yeah libertarian, um, but by no means a a Bernie Sanders socialist type. Okay. He is coming out and saying he's in favor of impeachment because of, I gather, mostly like obstruction of justice and all right. that that's in there. And he said he read the entire report. Yeah. He's like, My colleagues haven't. I read it. And there are certainly things in there that rise to the level yeah. of impeachment. And it, it, it drives me nuts that he is coming up and saying this and we still have so many Democrats who are like, oh, I don't know the politics of this. And it's like... <laughs> They, I feel like they've lost the opportunity they had. Had they come out very quickly and said, this is clearly impeachable, we have these 10 charges of, of obstruction, those are impeachable, let's move forward with this, and start the special committee that's going to do that yeah. and investigate that, then we wouldn't find. And they even have an opportunity, maybe right now, for everybody to say, oh, yeah, I was reading it too. I had the audiobook and I finally just got through it, nice. so now I'm ready to impeach. But I hear nothing. And so, yeah. is okay, so Amash and then some part of the Democratic caucus are on board with impeachment, and the leadership is not. Yeah, and I, I want to point a couple things out about, uh, uh, about this guy, right? So Justin's uh, constituency is around Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is, you know, a progressive-ish city, but that's, you know, the sort of surrounding area is not. You know, Grand Rapids, if you go to downtown Grand Rapids, there's a huge Amway. The Amway Grand oh, is in okay. Grand Rapids, right? So uh, also kind of tied in there with the DeVos family. Yeah. So I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> um, he's a Tea Partier. He calls himself a strict constitutionalist, a, a libertarian. He came in. In 2000, he was elected in 2010, took office in 2011. You know, he was once named the coolest guy in Congress, I think, by some magazine that does that. Anyway, you know, <laughs> cool Congress magazine. <laughs> I, I, I'm com. sure it's a thing. Yeah. So he also is going to be redistricting. So the redistricting is going to happen in Michigan. That's a thing. Uh, we talked about yes. that in our last episode. Um, so. This is the other thing that kind of blew me away. So he comes out and he says, look, I read through this whole thing. I feel like this is what I have to say about it. Very principled. And he's like 39, which, good on him. The immediate reaction is, first of all, somebody says, well, I'm going to run against him. And then they immediately go to his Palestinian heritage. So the Republicans huh. immediately get racist. racist on him. Yeah. I mean, that's the, just the first reaction. Well, point. you know, 
Well, at least I, they're consistent. I, it, it, it is astounding. And being from Michigan, it makes me both happy and sad at the same time. Like, hey, I appreciate. I probably have not appreciated anything that that guy has voted for. Right. <laughs> up to this point. Yeah. But I appreciate that he's coming out here and saying, like, no, this is. Yeah. Now, and to your point about redistricting, he may be thinking a little bit ahead of the game of like, well, I'm going to hedge my bets here a little bit because I don't know what my district's going to look like. But but still, you know, there's at least some political risk to him. And yeah. that's the one thing that's novel about this is every Republican who has ever sort of crossed Trump has been somebody who could afford the political risk involved in it. They weren't worried about their primary because they weren't running for office anytime yep. soon, or they weren't running for office at all. And so they could say, oh, yeah, he's terrible. You know, great. What we need are people who actually have some risk of a primary voter lashing out at them because mm -hmm. they're, they're against Trump. And so far, we have not seen that. He might be a crack in that, that reservoir dam, whatever we're talking about. Let's hope so. And I think, you know, it, it's kind of incumbent on us to support that message, right? So, yeah. You know, I think we should we should support people who are speaking out for the right reasons. All right. Who wants to talk about Deutsche Bank? You know, there's oh. nothing more interesting than German Oh, I banks. love talking about Deutsche Bank. I mean, ich liebe Deutsche Bank. Indeed. Um, yeah, so uh, apparently there was uh, some money laundering investigators within Deutsche Bank who go through and make sure that, you know, everything's all in the up and up. And they reported in 2016 and 2017 that uh, Kushner and Trump were setting off their money laundering alarms. Now, we don't really have any real specifics about that, but um, we do know that uh, it involved Trump's uh, foundation, which has since gone defunct because they were in trouble in New York. Um, but that's alarming. Um, now, granted, like, we've known for a while that Deutsche Bank has a whole bunch of broader corruption problems. They have lots of linkages to Russia. So this all fits the narrative quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, I do not get the sense that there's any collusion, though. So no collusion. clearly it is all okay. And I think one of the things that I'd read was that it was triggered by large cash transactions with Russians. I mean, essentially, like, right. but not colluding. Just right. Just, just you know, exchanging their money. Right. What's wrong with that? And so yeah. this is going to happen in the private banking division, right? So the private banking division will handle these kind of transactions. There is an oversight part of the bank. And if anybody really wants to talk about this, I have some knowledge of this because I've talked to banks about this for no good reason. And they flag this up, right? So it's supposed to be independent. There is a process. Computers will first. There will be a computer cycle that says, hey, somebody should take a look at this. Then somebody takes a look at it and writes up a report and decides whether or not to forward that on. Yeah. And then there's another level that looks at that report and decides whether or not to forward it to whatever the governmental regulatory agency is that. Yeah. And, and my understanding is that it went through that initial audit where they're like, okay, this is this needs to be moved up the chain and the executive level, the ones who are potentially concerned about the amount of money that Trump owes them and mm -hmm. what happens to that money if he doesn't ever pay it back because he's in jail. <laughs> um, they decided to go ahead and 
call that off and not report it to right. the government. Now, maybe, maybe, and you know, give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. You know, the, the bank that's got a notorious habit of money laundering, etc. <laughs> give them a benefit of the doubt that maybe they're just like, well, this really just doesn't rise to the level. Stop being so panicky about this. It's fine. I'm sure it's all okay. So hopefully more to come on that. I'm, oh, I'll pop yeah. some popcorn on that one. Again, because nothing's more interesting than German banks. Yeah. And I guess the other thing sort of crossing national, international is what's happening. I don't want to say what's happening in Iran because I, I don't feel think like anything is happening. really happening no. in Iran. It's Nothing just new is happening being made to sound like there's lots going on. Um, I think actually what's more interesting about the story at this point is what it suggests about the way power is operating within the Trump White House. And so there was talk of possibly sending 120,000 troops to Iran. And to give you perspective of, on that, that's a roughly how much we invaded Iraq with. So this is not a small commitment of forces. And there was a lot of sort of a, a sense of Iran did something, but we weren't told what. Right. And that we were going to do something about it, but we weren't told what other than sending a carrier in that general direction. Right. Sort of escalating. Yeah. For some reason, no reason. Yes. And, I've, and given our history with Iraq and given the honesty level of this president, anything has to be given a very close read and make sure that there's actual evidence to support it. Right. You know, we don't, we don't want the you know, like in Iraq war, we had a very credible Colin Powell going to the UN and selling the case for it. And that's ultimately why we were able to go into Iraq and cause that mess. There is nobody like that in the Trump administration. So yep. hopefully that makes this less likely to happen. But then again, you know, Trump might go into war right. for no reason. And, well, and it w isn't clear whether he wants to go to war. He says he doesn't. Bolton obviously does. Oh, he definitely does. Why couldn't we have had Secretary of Defense Michael Bolton? Yes. <laughs> yes. That, that would have been much better. It's clearly much the better. solution to this. But remember that Donald Trump once tweeted, a desperate president would start a war with Iran to get reelected. Yes. And I can't remember a time that Donald Trump hasn't seemed desperate. Oh, yeah. That's kind of his brand. Yeah, is, it, is, it, is he saying that, oh, he wouldn't do that because he's not desperate, or is he just saying, no, this is what I'm going to do later, just so yeah. you know. I'm waiting. Yeah. So also kind of internationally, we do have the European elections coming up here in the next few days, which is fantastic. Everybody's excited about those, right? Everybody? Everybody? Yes. Uh, so I think we'll probably talk about that next week. Um, but a couple interesting things uh, happened in the last week. So in Australia, there was a, a, a PM... Fraser Anning, he was somebody who came out after the attacks in New Zealand and essentially blamed Islam, as all reasonable racists do. And he famously egged and punched in the head. I mean, he, he was treated poorly uh, and then treated appropriately by the voters and voted out. So there's a win. I think there's a win for sanity. And then in Britain... Recently, all the Brexit talks had broken down. So we had Labour, we had the, the two parties in, in Britain kind of working this out, the Tories and Labour saying, we're going to work out Brexit and what's that going to look like. 
those have broken down. Yeah. I mean, and truth be told, they've got several months to have many more pointless Brexit votes before we have to worry about Brexit again. So, you know, uh, that's they, true. they don't need to rush but, on this. But all of a sudden we heard that now Boris Johnson wants to be prime minister, perhaps. And so how's that shaking out? And actually, the thing that I really care about, also food attack related, <laughs> Nigel Lafarge, who is by all accounts, a terrible human being, got milkshaked. Now, I like milkshakes. Does that make him a better person, though, if he's if he's bad person plus milkshake? It, it does bring all the boys to his yard, though. Yes. All of them. All of them. So, uh, all again, the Brexiters <laughs> to his yard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there are more to come on that. Uh, and the other, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, just sort of closing this out, is that the new Ukrainian president, the person who played the Ukrainian president on a comedy TV show was sworn in this week. The Martin Sheen slash John Stewart yes. of the Ukraine. So he's sworn in. The first thing he does is he says, look, I want to pass some laws about corruption, anti-corruption laws. And he has come in saying his number one goal is to end corruption. Number two goal is to end the fighting in the eastern Ukraine with Russian separatists and all of that. And the parliament said, like, look, we don't want to pass any of these laws. And before they could say that, he's like, OK, parliament's gone. We're disbanding the parliament. And that's part of the process. He's not pulling some crazy move here, but some fun yeah, times like, I'm like, there. How, how does that work? <laughs> like, I mean, because <laughs> I mean, part of me wants to know. Part of me doesn't want to talk about it too loudly because Trump might figure it out and be like, oh, I can just disband I the legislature. But well, I'm assuming they have a system for it there. Like, that's a thing. They Why do, you would want uh, that, I don't know. <laughs> but Well, yeah, I don't know either. So we'll, I think we'll see some more shakeout here in the next couple of days. And we're going to be following it closely. I'm, uh, I'm of Polish and Ukrainian descent, so it's somewhat interesting to me. Um, and also, you know, anytime a country elects a TV star to be president, I want to see how that's going to go. Right. Somewhere is it TV right. stars in general that are the problem or just our particular flavor? Well, we've got a sample size of two now. so Well, there you go. So I think that's it. That's it for this week. It was a big week. It was a big week. Yes, much going on. Um, we took a week off, uh, but we'll be back uh, hopefully next week unless uh, random trips abroad start showing up. But uh, overall, well, next week is Memorial Day. Oh yes, Memorial Day. So, so maybe I don't know the, what we're gonna do with that. I don't know. Maybe by the grill. We'll we'll do the podcast next to the grill, some sort of very American. We'll way. do the, we'll do the home edition barbecue. Right. Exactly. All right. Sounds Thanks good. for tuning in, and we'll talk at you next week. All right. Take care, everybody.